Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Asband. Our daf of the day, Masechet Ta'anit, daf Dalit, page four. So today's daf is not short, and it has what I would say is a whole bunch of relatively short um, pieces that we could go through, really all of them, and instead we decided to focus on Ahmed Aleph um, in the interest of time. Uh, the first one I want to talk about is quite close to the beginning of the daf, Va'amar Rava, Rava has a statement, When you have a Tzorvin you'll recall, is a Torah scholar, somebody who's particularly sharp and also presumably steeped in learning, who is boiling. Boiling here means it's a, it's a metaphor for anger. So what happens is we assume that it is the Torah itself that is getting this person to be so exercised. As there's a verse in Yirmiyahu in the book of Jeremiah that says, is not my word like fire, says Hashem, meaning that the words of Torah can be burning and can, can burn inside of a person and get them riled up and get them upset. So Rav Ashi says, any Torah scholar, any scholar, Talmid Chacham, who is not hard as iron, is not Talmid Chacham. Meaning, if you're, if you're, if you waffle, if you are wimpy, and also a verse from Jeremiah from the same chapter, from the same verse, like the hammer that breaks the rock in pieces, that the Torah scholar is going to be both this person, again, the word of God can be like fire, and the hammer that breaks the rock in pieces is now supposed to be the the Talmud Chacham. The problem with this is that, I mean, problem, the challenge here is that the idea of Torah scholars being angry and being rigid and hard is somewhat antithetical to the all the other recommendations, you know, about a person's midot, about a person's character character to begin with, you know, who are you supposed to be? The commentaries really get kind of upset about this idea and they're trying to, or puzzled as, you know, at best, right, to figure out why it would be that the, the Rava here is fundamentally praising what is otherwise a problematic trait, right? So the idea is that perhaps then, and this is where the, you know, be, giving the benefit of the doubt kicks in, the idea must be then that the, the Torah scholar, um, if, if such a person is going to become riled up to begin with, it must therefore be about Torah or spiritual matters or something in a, in a positive vein, so to speak, that one is then going to be that more sensitive or that much more, you know, if you're going to fly, if he's going to fly off the handle here, it's in being susceptible to anger against the things that are bad from a Torah perspective, meaning not the kind of rage or anger that is itself wicked, but just being a highly sensitive person, which nowadays we know to be actually a personality type, right? To be a highly sensitive person who um, is then going to be more upset than the next guy over by the things that might in fact be upsetting. And then the commentaries take great pains to say, but even so, when the Torah scholar goes to rebuke somebody, he, we can say today she too, right, should make a point of doing so in a gentle manner, doing so in an appropriate manner, right? The idea is not that 
it's acceptable to fly off the handle. It's simply recognizing that there are people, Torah scholars indeed, who will get quite angry, quite riled up from within the Torah study, meaning because the idea being that they, it sensitizes the one who learns it to be that much more upset by something that is wrong. Um, and I find this whole passage to be worthy of a whole lot more discussion than we're going to give it today, both in terms of, you know, what is a person's natural natural traits, what um, what kind what development happens to a person's traits in study, in sensitizing oneself, and how are you supposed to handle it? You know, is this in fact a positive commentary on anger, or is it still not? You know, is it the more typical uh, Talmud rejection of anger as a value? and yet simply a recognition that it does happen, and what do we do with it? But a lot of what I've just said here is now in is from commentary. It's from the Mi'iri, meaning from, from commentary, as opposed to saying this is what the text says. The text basically just says a Torah scholar who grows angry, you can, you can wager, you can assume that the anger comes from the Torah study. And now you have to go and you know, use your thumbs to figure out exactly what all this can really be about. Well, I would say delve in because I think there's plenty there that we're not going to touch on today. Um, this is really just the tip of the iceberg in terms of, I would say, character traits and the relationship between one's innate personality and the Torah learning that one does. Yeah, I, it's an interesting passage because anger is not really like a, a, a positive misa. And the Gemara ends on a note there that it's something you do need to work on. But like, what is the Gemara really trying to say that somehow real Torah study does lead you to anger? I agree with you. I think it's it, it requires a little bit more paying attention to and, and an interesting passage, not our typical sort of, we love Torah scholars, Talmidei Chachamim type of passage. You know, you start off reading it, you're not clear that it's totally complimentary. Um, I'm going to move on to the next piece here, which gets into a discussion about uh, people who ask things of God in an unreasonable way, right? I'm a Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani. I'm a Rabbi Yochanan. So Shashalu Shalo Kahogan, Lishnaim Heishivuhu Kahogan, Lachad Heishivu Shalo Kahogan. So there were three people who basically asked something of God, but it's basically the way they said the request was not good. Two of them, God responded favorably well or reasonably well. One, he did not. God did not respond reasonably with. And the three people are Eliezer, the Ebed of Abraham. Um, now, I just want to make a note about this. The story that they talk about there is the story with Rivka. Uh, Eliezer, that name does not actually appear um, in, uh, in the actual text of the story with Rivka itself. Um, and so that's an excellent example of, uh, you know, where the where Chazal sort of tried to um, make the number of characters the least amount. So in other words, there's a reference earlier in Bereshit to his Ebed, Eliezer Midamesek, and then they sort of combine the two characters together. So I just want to sort of put that out as a side. Um, and then the story of Shaul and the story of Yiftach. Um, the two stories of Eliezer and Shaul is interesting. Both have to do with sort of... Uh, well, all three of these actually have to do with women, which I think is is also an interesting piece to this. Uh, two of them end up in marriage, and one ends up in a sacrifice of a daughter, literally. Eliezer Ebed Avram Right. So Eliezer, the, the servant of Abraham, 
he makes a request basically in Bereshit chapter 24, verse 14, which basically he says to God, you know, that the first maiden who comes and says drink and to give your camels to drink, right, this will be the person. Right. And so what they don't like about this request is there was no qualifiers here, right? That even let's say she had some type of physical limitation or, you know, that that may be the, the implication here is that wouldn't have been an appropriate wife and that he shouldn't have just said it was anyone. Now, I think for the modern reader of this passage, this is an incredibly difficult passage. Um, it is not, you know, um, uh, it's not kind <laughs> in a way. I didn't read it as kind. Um, and, uh, but the Gemara answers, but nevertheless, even though he didn't ask this in an appropriate way, God, uh, God sends Rivka. And again, I don't have an, an, an answer for that piece. I just want to acknowledge it. Shaul ben Kish. So then we get to Shaul, right? Who basically, this was a whole story between him and Goliath, challenging the Jews. So this is from Shmuel Alp, chapter 17, verse 25. And it basically is the man who kills Goliath, right? Uh, the king will give him riches and will give him his daughter. Um, and so the man who killed Goliath, right? It says, Maybe that person could have been a slave or could have been a manzer. And then that person would have married his daughter. But instead, who was sent him David? So again, not an appropriate request. And again, another one that, that ends up in, um, that ends up in marriage, it's sort of the opposite, you know, opposite of Rivka here. It's the daughter that he made an inappropriate request about who the, the husband uh, would be. And then finally, we have right? So this is the very fam famous story about Jephti's daughter, right? Of Yiftach's daughter that before he left battle, he said, uh, you know, whatever comes first out of his house, this is from Shoftim chapter 11, verse 31, uh, he would give, he would dedicate to God, right? So it could have been something Tame. And God did not answer him in a way that was reasonable and ended up that it was his daughter who came out next. So I, I think this could really be read and sort of as a, I, to me, there's like a feminist piece here. Like how do women read this piece of the Gemara? All of these three are cases that sort of deal with women um, women being put in a particular situation, men who make sort of promises or uh, create scenarios where God needs to answer them and, uh, you know, it affects them. So I think there's a very interesting piece here. It's also interesting that Yiftach is the one of the three who sort of doesn't get answered, uh, doesn't get answered well. Um, and then So I, I think I yeah. think that comment is, jumps out at me more than anything else. Meaning I always you know, in my head, judge, I think the commentaries do, right? Judge Yiftach for not being careful, for taking a vow without knowing what it could be, right? He he vows that he's going to dedicate the first thing that comes from his house to greet him when he comes home to, to God, thinking that it's going to be some kind of animal and he'll offer a korban. And instead his daughter shows up. So now what, right? And I feel like, so I always feel like, take care with your words, Yiftach. And this Gemara says, God answered him, Loka Hogan. God could have said, people talk without thinking. People aren't so careful. He never intended it to be his daughter. And God could have made sure that an animal greeted him first. I think it's really interesting that this indicts God more than it, more than it indicts Yifta. Yeah, I hear that. The language there is also very interesting, that it's sort of like God could have, you know, 
God could have answered him differently and he doesn't. Um, again, I'm struck by that all three of these involve women. Um, but I think you're right. Also, a story, a piece of Gemara we could probably dedicate a full hour, <laughs> if not two hours to, but we're sort of, today we're just raising a lot of questions. That's what we're going to say the theme is here. And then finally, uh, to sort of end with this incident with Yiftaf, So this is what's referred to in Yirmiyahu, chapter 8, verse 22. It says, and this is what the prophet said to the Jewish people. Is there no Baum in Gilead? Is there no physician here? Right. Why? And the rest of the pasuk talks about the health of the daughter. My people are not recovered. So this is sort of an allusion to this vow that Yiftach made that his daughter suffers because of. And then it says, um, And then where it talks about human sacrifice, right, that they built. This is also near me out chapter 19, verse five. Right. Which uh, that they built these fire offerings to Baal, which he says he didn't command or speak nor came into his heart. So he's basically saying like this sacrifice that Yiftach made was not one that God, uh, that God actually um, wanted. Okay. So they, they go, I'm not going to read the rest of the Gemara there. Uh, they haven't, they give that a little bit. They, well, I, they basically use, uh, you know, uh, explain who all the people are uh, who are mentioned there, specifically a King of Moab sacrificing his son Yiftach and then, uh, Isaac and Yitzchak uh, with Abraham. Um, you know what? I am going to read this. So that part of the pasuk is about Moab. So this is from Melach and Bet, uh, three verse twenty-seven. That this king Mesha basically sacrificed his son, and God didn't want it. Below Dibartiz a Yiftach, right? Nor did I speak, right? Because Yiftach needs speech to sacrifice his daughter. Below Altal Libi, and does not go in my heart, say Yitzchak ben Avram. So this is interesting because what it's basically saying is, is that God commands Abraham to sacrifice Yitzchak, but that's not really what God's intention was in his heart. And so, in a way, this really undoes everything that's problematic about the Akeda. It's sort of saying, like, yeah, God didn't really mean it. It's a test, but there's no way he was actually going to really sacrifice uh, Yitzchak. Again, a highly problematic theological story, which we don't have enough for, but notice how the Gemara tries to sort of to get out of it. And then the Gemara goes on, that now they're going to give examples of where Knesset Yisrael, where B'nai Yisrael come together and ask a question that was also sort of a request that was unreasonable to God, right? But God answers them reasonably. Shinamar, and so the first one comes from Hosea chapter six, verse three. Let us know, let us strive to know God. He he's going forth is as sure as the morning. He will come to us as rain. So they basically compare God to rain. says BT. Now again, I think this is so interesting that after we come off a passage that deals with three women. He addresses Knesset Yisrael, who is often, it is a feminine, right? Because it's sort of like that marriage between God and the people. But we have many other times where there's a Gemara talking about a discussion between God and B'nai Yisrael, and they're not addressed as BT. So I just want to point that out, <laughs> okay? So he says, BT, You ask me, right, for something that sometimes is good, sometimes is good, and sometimes is not good, right? Aval, right, rain isn't good when it comes in the wrong season. But I will always be to you like something that's desired. So later on in Hosea, in chapter 14, verse 6, 
He says, I will be like the dew because dew is in all seasons. We, we learned about this in the previous stuff, right? And is always a blessing. And what was the other request? So this is from Shira Shir in chapter eight, verse six, set upon me a seal on my heart and on my arm. That's something that B'nai Israel asked of God, right? And again, this feminine language, BT, my daughter, right? What you're asking me to do to put this seal on your arm and your heart, sometimes you see it, sometimes you won't. It's covered up with clothing. I will make a seal that the whole world will see. Right? And so here they quote here a pasuk from Yeshayahu, chapter 49, verse 16. Behold, I have engraved on you the palm of my hand. So in other words, the sign that God gives is in a very obvious and public place on palms and not in a place that would normally be covered up. I, I found, again, I found the feminine piece of this passage to be very, very interesting. Um, and I think it really makes us have to think about it for a masakha that's really going to deal with sort of praying to God and requesting things from God when, when we're looking around the world and being like, things are not going exactly the way we want, or we need something to be fulfilled, that we have to really do it in a way that's appropriate. And there are many examples of times where humans do not do it in a way that it's appropriate. And I don't know, maybe before we get into the real details of Ta'anid and how we, you know, do request reign of God, this almost comes as a warning to say, sometimes the default of humans is to not ask appropriately. Um, that's interesting. I mean, does that mean that we're simply incapable or that we don't bother? I don't know. I, this whole passage is very interesting to me. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I'm going to now get to the part of the Gemara that actually is talking about asking in the way that you're really supposed to ask. Um, the Gemara here takes us back to the halachic piece from the Mishnah. It says, that's a citation from the Mishnah, right? That says, you don't ask for the for the rain. And the Mishnah was talking about not asking for rain until you get to the very beginning of the rainy season. And the Gemara continues here to explain this. The rationale here is that asking and mentioning, meaning mentioning God's power in bringing rain as compared to the request for rain, which is presumably more direct, you know, a more direct of a statement of a need, it's one thing. So as much as we've talked about how they're actually different things, well, you know, on the one hand, is mentioning God's strength as bringing rain. And then in let's say you've got the request for rain, that's in the bracha of Parnassah, of, of a livelihood. In this case, the Gemara says, well, no, the rationales really do the same thing. Mantana. So who, which Tana says that they're going to be the same thing? Who teaches this halacha? Because excuse me, is the one who says that you talk about rain, you mention rain, from the time of putting down hanachato, from, from resting it. What are you resting? You're resting the lulav. You put it, we finish the holiday, and boom, immediately we're at the beginning of the rainy season, and now we're going to be asking and mentioning rain. Amar Abai, but Abai says now to Rava, but rather, you could say that this is in a, this is in accord with the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer, who Rabbi Eliezer said that you mentioned rain from the beginning of Sukkot, right? But then you can still draw that distinction between mentioning and asking, in which case the the point of 
um, what do you do at the very beginning of the rainy season? So again, the, he, Rabbi Elisha has this distinction more strongly as compared to Rabbi Yoshua's position, but either one of them can line up with this, uh, with the halacha and the Mishnah. And now we've got a different version of this entire discussion. Are you going to say that this is Rabbi Yoshua who says that you that the rainy season begins at the time of putting down the lulav? So that would then have the, the statement bringing in Rabbi Yoshua's name being anonymous and Rava being the one to say, well, actually, you could also bring in Rabbi Lezer and say that it was, you know, from the beginning of Sukkot, you have mentioning, and then afterwards you have um, asking, and that they would be actually separate things. In which case, you you see, then Abaye doesn't play a role here. Meaning, it's it's the same halachic positions, and the question is simply who said what when in terms of determining who. Let's say this better. We have Amarayim who are talking about whose earlier position. Is being represented is being represented here. So then we say, you know, the first version has Rava and Abaye, one saying Rabbi Yoshua and the other saying Rabbi Lazar, and the second version has the, you know, the anonymous text of the Gemara bringing the opinion of Rabbi Yoshua and Rava bringing the opinion of Rabbi Lazar. Um, and I think that's it. Meaning, with that we finish Amud Aleph. But also the point here is that if we're going to say that this is about when do you mention things appropriately? All of this is about at what point do you mention Gvurak Shamim and at what point do you ask for rain? And fundamentally, they end up agreeing, even if the way they come to that position is really different. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, they come to the same conclusion, but they come to it from different angles. Um, and I guess just before we wrap up, I just want to point out, I'm not going to read it. The end of the DAP gets into an interesting discussion about how do you sort of transition over to mentioning rain when you have that two-day yomtiv in Bavel? And, you know, is do you do it just at the Musaf of the eighth day and then sort of take a break for Mincha Marev and then do it again the next day on day nine? I mean, ultimately, the Gemara says, once you ask for it, start mentioning it. We don't stop mentioning it, which is what we do today. But, and this is a sussing Gemara, as you like to call it. It's interesting to see how some of these minhagim were not exactly set, and we see the Gemara really try to work it through. Um, yeah, I guess so. I mean, part of the issue here, and I keep saying this, right, when you've got a long daf and you see snippets, right, though the working it through here is fairly brief. I was really more just struck by that it was a question altogether. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank is reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP and our Talking Talent Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.